Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the political comedy podcast that dissects the past week's news before realising, oh, it's all charred inside, I really shouldn't have used it for science, I should have let it die in the wild. This is episode 110, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and as oak-smoked barrel-ripened hernia Donald Trump met with US President he-he Vladimir Putin and said he trusted him over US intelligence, I understand that because basing how US intelligence works just on him, top-level smarts is something that's quite clearly lacking. Yes, Donald Trump met Putin for reasons absolutely no one knows why, and openly said that old Vladimir helping with the investigation into Russian hacking would be a good idea. What? Why would you do that? I mean, that's like if a police detective said, hey squad, don't worry, we've got this murder wrapped, that guy with the blood on his hands and the big knife said he's glad to help. In the UK, the government have already had their Brexit white paper crumpled up and thrown in the bin. Obviously not the recycling one, though, because they won't be using it again. As Prime Minister and template for Aunt Lydia, Theresa May accepted the amendments from the European Research Group, who are a bunch of people who mainly research how much each other hates Europe. That basically means the big plan that she announced last week is already dead in the water and no one even wants to retrieve the body to bury it properly. Whoa, 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 wait, hang on, what am I going on about? Slow down, everyone. How on earth did we get here? Yes, sorry, there is a lot to catch up on as it has been yet another week in British and global politics where in years to come, historians will use it to add to the reasoning as to why this decade is known as the harrowing 20-teens, a.k.a. when humanity just gave up. Ha! Who am I kidding? As if there'll be any historians after the great intelligence purge of 2021. But genuinely, though, I really feel like we're now just hours away from a Middle Eastern country saying they're going to have to intervene in the UK and US just to end the widespread suffering. So, where to start? Well, how about we go chronologically so as to dip your toes into the shallow end of awful before you plunge in genitals first and then get hit in the face by a giant wave of upset? After the beginning of the week involving the chaotic crashing out of the cabinet of anthropomorphised dandruff-flavoured candy floss David Davis and potato sack pulled over several bowling balls Boris Johnson, a cabinet reshuffle happened. Strengthened in the way that cider is if you leave it out until it becomes undrinkable, Theresa May decided to uphold the message from her February speech celebrating 100 years of suffrage about how women do politics differently by appointing more men called Jeremy than any female politicians. So the not-so-much reshuffle as 
manning the station, and that included Jeremy Wright, a man who looks like what you'd find if you typed into Google Images stock photo of an 80s American IBM manager. And he's now the new culture secretary, something that will suit him well as he has an inactive Twitter account, seems to have absolutely no interest in the digital world, and probably thinks Stranger Things is a documentary on modern life. Another of May's new ministers is happy new potato Justin Tomlinson, who got in trouble in 2015 for leaking information from the Public Accounts Committee to payday lenders and money bastards Wonga.com. And now he's Parliamentary Undersecretary for Family Support Housing and Child Maintenance, which I guess means it's only time before those claiming universal credit will have to pay it back with 1,000% interest. And all that's as well as the appointments of face drawn on Tagliatelli, Jeremy Hunt as Foreign Secretary, because no one can represent just how healthy our country is globally than the man that made the NHS sick. And what if someone pulled Ant McPartlin's back of the neck skin too hard, Dominic Raab, as Brexit Secretary, because there were no positions left in the mailroom. Raab's first duty as Brexit Secretary involved him trying to unveil the Brexit white paper to Parliament, only to be heckled by MPs asking why they hadn't seen it before his statement. All Raab needed to do after that was tell everyone the white paper doesn't actually exist before revealing that it does, but he hasn't finished it or even started it, and he's basically the perfect David Davis tribute act. Except the white paper was finished, and as Theresa May said, it would have delivered the Brexit everyone voted for. And by that, I mean it was a mishmash of ideas that wouldn't work with no definitive stance based on a simplified notion that no one thought through that is incredibly hard to carry out. It's not so much cherry-picking and cake-eating, but more a badly made cherry cake that someone showed to Mr Kipling and caused him to cry. May and her cabinet achieved the impossible and united Britain, bringing everyone, Remainers and Brexiteers together to agree that the white paper was shit. The proposals suggest a Ukraine-style association agreement, which, I think judging by recent events, means we'll be even more prone to Russian invasion than before. May had to deal with more resignations as two vice-chairs quit in protest at the White Paper, and these were Maria Caulfield, who's both a Tory MP and a nurse and therefore doesn't actually exist, and Ben Bradley, whose resignation now means the Conservatives will struggle without someone to naively pen legally dubious tweets on their behalf. What a shame. Someone else who wasn't happy with the white paper, even though there's every chance he hadn't read it because it didn't have his name in it, was Donald Trump, who tumbled into Britain like a lump of uncooked pork, two days after kicking off about NATO not paying enough money into defence, and then one day after at the NATO summit saying what they were doing was actually fine, in the way you expect someone probably had to quietly tell him he once again had no fucking idea what he was talking about. Within hours of landing in the UK and during his meeting with Theresa May at Blenheim Palace, his exclusive interview with everyone's favourite bonfire material, The Sun, was released, saying that May had ignored his advice and wrecked Brexit, and if the Brexit deal on the white paper goes ahead, it would kill a deal with the US. And here I was thinking the white paper had no bonus elements. I mean, a trade deal with a country that's currently in a pointless trade war that's both hurting itself and other countries, why would we want to pass up something that sweet? I mean, why not secure a trade deal with the US and then maybe another one with space where we fire all our best food into orbit at ridiculous cost and in return we all starve and die. The rest of the interview included Trump saying Boris Johnson would make a great Prime Minister, a sentence that would only be correct if he added fucking livid at the end of that. He said immigrants were destroying Europe's culture, even though a ton of European culture was created by immigrants. And let's face it, Trump doesn't know what culture is, as he only eats fast food that is so synthetic it'll never go off. Trump also blamed Sadiq Khan for letting too many immigrants into London, something that if Trump really cared about, even helped out by not visiting. Oh, and he also kept referring to the hospital in London, which I think means he assumes there's only one of them, which is weird, but as a plus should limit how much of the NHS the UK government can sell to him. 
The next day, when meeting May in Chequers, Trump apologised to her and told her the interview was fake news, even though there's an audio recording of him saying all of it. Weirdly, what he said in the interview was fake news, so maybe it was just an inadvertent admittance of his own bullshit. But if not, then he was calling the sun fake news, which it mostly is, except for this one time when it wasn't, and he's saying it was. Damn it! I mean, this feels like in a film when a hardened criminal tries to go on the straight and narrow, but something drags them back into the underworld. The sun headline for something like that is probably Carlitos Wahey. But without Trump, who knows, maybe the sun could have spent the next day reporting his first few proper facts while Rupert Murdoch turned to dust in the sunlight somewhere. Highly unlikely, but now we'll never ever know. Ever the strong leader may accepted Trump's apology, legitimised his bullying and rhetoric, and then said it's just the press, which is the world's biggest understatement for a leader of a party who thrives off their support. It's like May saying, oh, it's just the donors, or oh, it's just a tax haven. However, at the meeting in Chequers, Trump did say that he wants a UK-US trade deal, but didn't understand what May was trying to do, which, to be fair, is the first time he's ever been close to aligned with UK public opinion. And he said the US and UK had a relationship that was the highest level of special, which with him probably means Star Wars holiday. May later revealed that the guidance Trump gave her was sue the EU and don't give up, which are two awful bits of advice. Trump then went on to turn up 15 minutes late for meeting the Queen before not bowing and then seemingly forgetting to walk, so he blocked her way. Now look, I'm sure Lizzie is used to dealing with old racist sex pests, what with a lifetime spent with Philip and Rolf Harris having done her portrait, but you don't come to the UK and offend our monarch. I'm saying that as someone who's never been a royalist, but you see what Trump's done? He's so much of a shit that last week I felt temporarily sorry for a right-wing rag, our shitty Prime Minister and the Queen. He's so awful that you take sides of other awful people instead just to be against him. Trump is the ISIS of presidents. I mean, that works, right? He's misogynistic, homophobic, has tons of mad fanatics, and looks like he's blown himself up, albeit mostly just in a sort of inflatable way. Over 100,000 people took to the streets in London on Friday, plus more all across the UK to protest against Trump's visit in what's been classed as the biggest protest in the world against another country's leader. And I have to say, everyone telling Trump to fuck off is the first time we've done a hostile environment policy correctly. However, disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox said that everyone who marched was an embarrassment to themselves because, you know, he only cares about the will of some of the people. While I disagree with him, I suppose that as he is a twice-disgraced MP whose Brexit proposals have regularly been proven nonsensical and impossible, people embarrassing themselves is about the only thing Liam Fox is actually an expert in. Many critics tried to say that the protest was not just anti-Trump, but anti-American, which is stupid as us Brits don't hate Americans, except Trump, or all of Trump's team, or all of the Fox News team, or Harvey Weinstein, or Kevin Spacey, or Johnny Depp, or most of those YouTube celebs, or Kanye West, or all of the Kardashians and the Jenners, or Rebecca Black, or all of the really loud ones that let you know they're American from miles away, or all of the ones that wear red trousers. Okay, okay, but look, this march was definitely just anti-Trump. Promise. After keeping to form and visiting a country mainly just to insult two women and a Muslim man, I mean, no wonder he thinks Boris Johnson would make a good Prime Minister, Trump travelled to Helsinki to have a summit with Putin for reasons no one has ever explained. Trump swears that before this meeting he'd only met Putin two and a half times, which is weird. I mean, I'm guessing on one occasion they only had time for a hand job. This time round, though, it lasted way longer than the 90 minutes that was planned, so I'm guessing if Putin is still in World Cup mode, that meant they went to extra time and then penalties, but just not for him or Trump. 
at the press conference after the meeting where it's likely Trump just asked if Putin could help with the midterms and Putin told Trump to dance like a monkey Trump openly said that he backed Putin over the FBI called the US foolish and then said they'd both tackle hacking and cybercrime together all in a way that makes you wonder what the trigger word is that Vlad needs to say down the phone in order to make Donald turn a gun on himself at the end Putin gave Trump a World Cup ball as it's a really nice gesture to fondly handle a marked rubbery sphere and then give him a World Cup souvenir as thanks Back in the US, 12 Russians were indicted for hacking into and interfering with the 2016 US election, meaning that as Trump supporters regularly stated about Hillary Clinton, but what about her emails? It may not have been a protest and more just a reminder to the Russian intelligence services. Meanwhile, May told Conservative Brexiteer rebels to back her or risk no Brexit at all, which I think is the first time in ages I've heard of a political situation with a win-win outcome former frontbencher and the only person I've ever seen who looks unhappy about smiling, Justin Greening, is demanding a second people's referendum, saying that May's plan is the worst of both worlds, which is the first definitive proof of the government being aliens that I've heard so far. However, Downing Street have already said there will not be a second referendum under any circumstances, which is very short-sighted. I mean, what if their alien overlords beam down and threaten to blow up humanity unless there's a second referendum? See, they didn't think that one through, did they? Never say never, dickheads. MPs continue to step down from their positions in order to revolt against the new Brexit plan, including MP Chris Green, who you might know from, um, no, and uh, MP Scott Mann, who, uh, stuff, and MP Robert Courts, who did, uh, the thing. No, absolutely no idea at all. I mean, I could have just made up descriptions for them, and you'd never have a clue if it was correct. Chris Green, who looks like a hoover, vomited up a cheesecake. No, doesn't even matter, does it? No one cares. I mean, Scott Mann actually sounds like the name a child would give to a crayon drawing of a man they just drew. Anyway, Robert Courts resigned during the World Cup final, just to make, you know, a really massive impact. It's not known if those resignations actually had any impact on May or her Brexit plans, but unless other cabinet members step down, it does sort of feel like a handful of extras from a film mass battle scene just quietly walking off because they don't get to wear the helmets they like. Could the Conservatives be splitting up into separate parties? Who knows? I mean, for a start, if they did, what would they be called? The cons and the new Conservatives? Both sound shit. But the debate on the White Paper and its proposed amendments got severely heated, making me think it could be possible. As vanilla rebel Anna Subri announced the Brexiteer Tory MPs have said in private conversations that the loss of thousands of jobs will be worth it for the country's sovereignty. I'm pretty sure now she's said that, they'll be finding out if that comes true or not by the next election. They'll be personally finding out if that comes true or not by the next election. The government managed to pass its white paper bill, but only because it included the amendments that basically ruined everything it proposed. May insisted that the changes were consistent with her plan, in the same way she definitely has a best friend, but he goes to another school. And anyway, it's all gone to shit, and the government have now proposed that Parliament has its recess five days early, so they can all just run away and not deal with any of it, because that's the grown-up sensible thing to do. Once again, the unoriginal Conservatives have stolen the Labour policy of more holidays and changed it so somehow it only benefits them. Conservative MP Andrew Griffiths and fully realised Roger the Dodger in many ways has resigned as Minister for Small Business because he was also revolting but in a different way after it was revealed that he sent two female constituents over 2,000 sexts, which is a lot. I mean, I'm guessing that's 1,000 each. Was he just typing out 50 shades of grey in emojis? I mean, I have no idea what that's like, but I'm guessing it's a lot of aubergines, chains and a few snoring faces. And Labour MP Jared O'Mara, a.k.a. Spamhead Jones, who was suspended over homophobic and misogynistic Twitter comments, 
has resigned from the Labour Party, presumably to run as the next US President with that sort of CV. Who knows? He said he'd not been listened to or given a fair trial by Labour about the tweets he did when he was much younger. Labour responded by saying, sorry, what did he say? Who was that? So, in the past week, that's Davis, Johnson, Griffiths and now Mara, who've all resigned rather than getting fired for their mishaps. I mean, what's it take to lose your job as an MP? And who can we sponsor to find out? Come on, Thangham Debonair, I'll buy you a sandwich if you try to set fire to Michael Fabricant's hair during PMQs and see what happens. Come on, Joe Swinson, light a firework during the autumn budget speech and I'll buy you some biscuits. A limit must be found, people. It must be found. According to several polls, Labour are now ahead of the Conservatives by four points, with the biggest lead since last year's general election. All it will take for them to win is somehow not tear themselves apart even more than the government, which is why it's great that it was revealed in a book by a former Labour staffer that the party HQ spent £5,000 just targeting online adverts at Labour leader and Sydney and Ice Age Jeremy Corbyn and his team, so they'd think HQ are running the campaign they wanted when in fact they weren't. I mean, that is pretty low, but I reckon if they can learn from this and target individual adverts at all of the Labour leadership frontbench, backbenchers and members all individually, giving them the Brexit plan they think they want, I reckon they might just survive to the next election. And lastly, Environment Secretary and dethorned and entirely undeadly pufferfish Michael Gove has admitted that had it been left to him, the Leave campaign would not have stoked immigration fears in the way it did. Which is funny, as he's the one who said immigration would make the NHS unsustainable by 2030, staying in the EU would add 5 million to the UK population, and a ton of bullshit about Turkey. So, not saying that ship has sailed, Govey, but I'm pretty sure it's already finished its voyage, but on its return hit an iceberg, and can now be found somewhere deep underwater on the seabed, and everyone's wishing you were on it. Oh my god, that was like the longest intro of my life. How is there so much news? People, seriously, there's too much. Do you know how many times I've had to rewrite this week's? Even more than last week's. My daughter was crying a lot this weekend as we think she's teething, and apparently having bits of bone push their way through your gums isn't all that comfortable. Who knew? But anyway, there have been several times when she's been crying her tiny eyes out, and I felt like just showing her the news headlines and saying, you see that? That's what you should be crying about, before joining her in curling up, sucking my thumb and passing out on the floor. That is also the reason uh, that I didn't go to the Trump march uh, this weekend, uh, her teething, which was a bit sad. But I did see all the amazing pics from it, and I was truly impressed with many of the excellent banners. It seemed absolutely brilliant. Um, instead, I saw some friends of mine from the US who I've not seen in over 10 years. So I sort of feel like part of me neutralised Trump's visit by meeting with good Americans instead. Does that work? No, no, it, it doesn't. But hey, I tried. Um, hello. Huh. How are you? Did you Trump protest? I mean, I know it's obvious, but God, that sounds a lot like the step before a dirty protest, doesn't it? I know, I know that's cheap, but but it's still funny. It's still funny. Okay, look, let me rattle through this bit on the penultimate episode uh, before a summer break because oh my god, this episode's so long already, and it's going to be longer. Um, seriously, you may need to take time off work just to get through this. Um, what is exciting though is next week's the last one before the summer, and soon I will not wake up on a Monday morning panicking about what can I say Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn look like today. But I mean, only for a few weeks. Obviously, I'll be doing that again in September. So thanks for being here on what is such a long episode but I've tried to cut it down as much as possible there is so much happening it's just endless stuff keeps happening firstly shout out to Wap Wap Waps which I'm sure is their real name for giving such a lovely review on the iTunes also uh, Triple W isn't 
Hang on, wait, isn't WAPS an old school euphemism for boobs? Are you the three boob lady from Total Recall? If so, I am well chuffed that you're a listener. Um, anyway, Mega WAPS uh, says, please do a short episode on something like simplifying all the major events from the past year and their consequences. And I like that idea a lot, uh, Triple WAPS. And I'm thinking that the best time for that is either at some point during the summer to keep you going, or just before the show returns in the autumn as a kind of previously on partly political episode. What are your thoughts? When would you like it in your ears? And what events would you like me to cover? Because, I mean, this past week alone can't really fit into an hour episode, so I'm going to have to be selective, aren't I? Send all the suggestions to the email, web contact page, or Twitters, or Facebooks, thanking you. Um, Also, if you'd like to review the show, why not do that? I mean, what else have you got to do? Oh yeah, loads of stuff. Okay, fair. But still, it takes just seconds unless your internet connection is lame. So please, give the show a five-star review on wherever you like reviewing things, whether that's iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Podbean, or the BBC Good Food Guide, because I like to think this show is very easy to digest indeed. If you can afford to and fancy donating to the show, I'd bloody love it if you could, and I would definitely say nice things about you to my great aunt when I next see her. You can donate a monthly fee to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or a one-off payment to ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro if you like. If you, just if you want it. Just if you fancy it. Go on. I mean, just if you like. Why not do it? Why not? Why not do it? Um, one last bit of admin is that I was emailed by someone called Lysia who very nicely asked if I could plug uh, their music fundraiser on July 21st in North London supporting the Cora Community Centre in Athens that supplies thousands of refugees with basic life needs such as food, clothes, legal sport and a safe space for women and children. So, very good cause indeed. Um, the fundraiser is at the Castle Climbing Centre in N4 uh, in London on Saturday and has Pete Fowler who DJs with Hot Chip and Perry Kay and loads of other cool people that I am, I'll be honest, I am too old to know about. I These names could be made up. I assume they're all very good people. I, d- I don't know um, sounds good though you can grab tickets at tickettaylor.com uh, if you search for hands up for Cora that's K-H-O-R-A community centre um, and you can also find out more about the community centre itself at Cora K-H-O-R-A hyphen Athens.org so do that too um, and if any of you out there also have local or national events that you think are in line with this show's general blab I'm more than happy to give them a plug if there's time so do drop me a line at all the usual places that lines go so where is that graph charts I guess telephone poles who knows on this week's show I am speaking to Lupita Valdez at Justice Mexico now all about the huge political changes in Mexico and that is a quite long but super fascinating chat so there's not a lot of time for anything else except you guessed it some bucking Fexit brawl out I know I'm so sorry I know there's other things to discuss but there also aren't many other things and most of those other things are going to be affected by Brexit anyway and the only one that isn't is how Michael Fabricant is a xenophobic bellend who looks frighteningly like Carol McGiffin and really by saying that I've sort of covered that bit and you will know and you can be upset by that too so now that's done here is this AMLO might sound like a brand new Sesame Street character, but actually, it's the acronym for Andreas Manuel López Obrador, the man who's just been elected Mexican president, hopefully ending over 80 years of corrupt rule by the country's main parties. 8-0! That's AMLO from the... So anyway, with a culture of politicians accepting bribes, drug cartels having far too much power, and the corruption report giving Mexico just 29 points out of 100, I should say the lower the points, the more corrupt your system is, instantly, UK scored 82, because apparently it's a bonus if you're pretty open about all the money that donors give to persuade policies and avoid tax. But with all those things, this recent election showed Mexicans wanted a change. And despite a reputation for election rigging and over 140 politicians being killed in the lead-up to the vote, which is just terrifying, 
saying. I mean, no one can accuse Mexican politicians of being careerists when they are literally taking the job for life. Despite all that, AMLO still managed over 53% of the vote share, proving that people really wanted him in. And now he's promising to tackle corruption, inequality, bring in universal healthcare and improve education. But hey, that is a taller order than a serve from John Eisner. And AMLO's being touted by many as a left-wing populist and a Mexican Trump by people who've obviously never read any of Trump's quite different policies. So will he change Mexico for the better? Why were so many politicians killed? How will Mexican Trump handle American Trump? And how many of these names will I actually be able to pronounce properly? Well, this week I spoke to Lupita Valdez at the London-based campaign Justice Mexico Now, who aimed to inform on and work to end human rights abuses in Mexico. I had pretty much zero idea of how things were in Mexico with all the news in the UK mainly being about things from the US side of the possible wall. And it was only after hosting a night for Justice Mexico Now last month that I found out just how huge their country's changes were. That night, they were raising money to send independent vigilators to the election to help stop rigging. And so I thought it'd be good to find out from Lupita what this result means to Mexicans, what AMLO is all about, and exactly how Justice Mexico now helped. This is a long but thorough and very good one. And I should say that Lupita and Justice Mexico now are longtime supporters of AMLO. So it is, in some way, a chat that's very biased towards him. But really, as you'll hear, when your political voting options are politicians who swayed by drugs, cartels and bribery, why wouldn't you back the man who says he'll uphold human rights? I mean, not doing that would be a bit like willingly taking the stormy path in a horror film rather than the sunny one. And if you do that, you deserve to be eaten by zombies, frankly, because you should know better. And no, it won't be quicker in the long term when you're running away from zombies. Anyway, what am I talking about? Look, I hope you enjoy and you feel informed. Here is Lupita. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Have I, I've probably said, have I said that right? Have I said that right? Yes, Andres yes. Manuel. Oh, that's good. Okay, so he won the election on July the 1st. Um, how do you feel about that result? Um, and is this going to be a, an amazing long awaited change from the kind of corruption of the PRI or PAN parties? Is, is, are things going to be different now? Well, personally, I, I I am a leftist, so I when I learned, and I've been supporting Obrador since 2006, even before when he was a major of Mexico City, the biggest uh, city in Mexico, um, and I've been his supporter since then, and when when he contested, because he's been, this is the third time that he's been a candidate for presidency, and... Um, and we were all, of course, worried because he thought, he said, this is the last time I'm contending. If it's, if it's not this time, it's going to be ever. Um, I'm going to return to my daily life, regular life outside of politics. So we were all quite worried that this was going to be our last chance of significant change in terms of uh, governance. Um, and the fact that he won with such a huge majority um, oh, it's amazing. I was not in Mexico City, but I stayed awake all night. Um, I have friends that went to Socalo to, to the celebrations, and they said, for example, that it was amazing to see how, you know, people in Mexico, we close restaurants and shops very late. And the, and the results came about, let's say, between 8 and 11 p.m. So they said that when people started gathering by the thousands in the Socalo, the the people from the shops from all the 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 pink zone from from all the center of Mexico started to get out of their jobs and and celebrating and jumping and cheering and 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 you know this this sort of happiness uh, uh, from the population was very very visible um and and it was just heartwarming and it gave us a sudden sense of hope 
um, that we hadn't had in, in many years, let me tell you. Many, many years. That sounds amazing. I mean, what, what made this one different? You said that he ran before. Why is it this time round that, you know, he's managed to be successful? So I think... Um, in, and, and not only successful, he managed to get a majority, as you know. I mean, he swiped his election. Uh, he not only won it, he he got majority in both the higher and the lower chambers in Congress. Um, he got four out of the nine governorships, sorry, five out of the nine governorships uh, in the country. And he won majority in more than half of the local uh, legislatures uh, throughout the country. This is a massive win, like immensely. If you see, if you see the color map, the map colored according to to who won in these elections, everywhere is AMLO. The north, the the south, the the east, the west, everywhere. So that points out to something. Why didn't he win? In the last elections, why didn't he win in 2012 and in 2006? Well, I think that the issue that propelled him to to this success this this time was violence. That he himself, um, after so long uh, time being part of the political arena, because he's been there since very young, he hasn't become polluted by the next, by constant cor- uh, cases of corruption, not himself, cases of corruption, nor by the collusion with uh, with what's perceived as the political class with the drug cartels. So in this sense, he's perceived in general by his followers and by the people who voted for him this time as someone outside of this circle of criminality and corruption. And I think that's where he got the biggest uh, capital uh, for this time's uh, success. And um, last time uh, he got, he, he in 2006, people were claimed it was a big campaign comparing him to, to Chavez, uh, that he was going to bring about, you know, socialism and communism to Mexico, that he was going to turn our economy into something similar than that of Venezuela. He was going to... It was a very bad a campaign, a smearing campaign against him, of course, from the, from the, from the opponents, from the opposition parties. Um, and I think that got a hold on people because, you know, I believe by heart that people vote out of fear. And in 2006, people were not fearing drug cartels. They were not fearing um, violence in the streets in your neighborhood. You were fearing uh, an economic crisis, right? Because it was in certain times in, 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 the, in the 2006, 2008. So people wanted a steady economy. And I think um, that's why people, at the end of the day, even in 2012, after the crisis of the 2008, I think people, that's why voted for the certainty of the main political party, the right wing, who could historically provide in economic terms. Um, in, in that's, that's the case of, of the last election. But then in 2006, you know, he won, sorry, he, sorry, he lost uh, for by only 0.5%, not even a 1% point with, a, with, with Calderon, who was um, the candidate that got into presidency. 
So imagine uh, we are a country of 100 and almost 30 million, 130 million people um, with uh, almost 90 million voting uh, or at least registered, re registered to vote. And then he lost by just 0.5%. Um, this this it was, it was 2006 was a difficult period for Mexico because we all had hopes of change, um, and then losing for such a small margin um, was was a difficult thing to see. And, and of course, we all know how elections in Mexico um, are a bit dodgy, to say the least. Right. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Can you can you elaborate a bit more? Of course. Um, Dodgy. Let's say when people talk about fraud, fraud is a big thing. It's a big word that you can use just to generalize about an election. But you have to talk about the small nuances of, of what's going on on the years before, but also on the on the, on the electoral period. So social um, programs are used very often to coerce vote. So people are giving money, you know, cash transfer, which are conditional. And ironically, in Mexico, they become conditional on terms of who are you going to vote for, right? Um, and then you have also deployment of people coercing, paid by parties, coercing people to vote. So practices such as having close to polling stations, a, 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 a house, they call it, I think, France house, um, and it's it's basically where you where people bring the pictures of their ballot papers uh, with a with a special with a specific vote with voting for a specific party, and then they get back money, something in the sort of twenty pounds or thirty pounds, you know, something like that, something insignificant. But for for in terms of the poverty that that is going on in Mexico. All these small cash transfers in exchange of votes are very significant because people are 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 very poor, and, and twenty pounds can mean that your family eats um, during a week. So, so people for, are going for that kind of they're going for the quick money, even though in the long term it's going to be more damaging for them. Exactly, exactly. That's the case, and um, and then. We have massive situations like that in Mexico, um, and sadly, I believe that our national electoral institution, it's very corrupt in that sense, that they neglect to address those issues appropriately and how they should be addressed, you know, with a very uh, strong hand. And in 2006, we had a massive situation uh, of the sort, uh, and what happened is that, okay, López Obrador lost. Uh, statistically, uh, by 0.5%. But then how can you talk that those elections uh, uh, were clean if you have all these sort of um, uh, coercion strategies uh, and, and illegal coercion uh, of the vote? You can't. Um, so happily this time, the, the, the AMLO won not by a small percentage. We were all fearing that if he won for, by a small percentage, then they might, you know, use 
more coercion and then get a 0.5% ahead of him. We were all fearing that. We were all like, with, you know, I couldn't completely breathe until we saw how uh, massively he had won, which was a great joy to see. Yeah, that must yeah. be an amazing feeling. I mean, one of the things, is, I think one of the reasons why this election started to um, show up in global news is because the amount of violence, I mean, you're talking about sort of corruption in, in terms of paying people to vote, but it seemed like, a, I think I, I read at one point it was 116 political candidates had been killed in the in the run-up to the election why was it so high and and what was the what was the reason for you know these people getting killed why was that happening yeah that's and actually the, the final number and it's still it's still happening you know every day more politicians die uh but up until the election there were 145 politicians murdered Plus 50 people that were members of their families, of their close families. So imagine a total of uh, 200 people related to candidacies uh, murdered, uh, cold blood. And, and, and I think, you know, we don't know who pulled those triggers for sure. However, experts do point that it is very likely that the killings uh, uh, were a way and are a way for organized crime to try to gain control um, and to gain influence on local government uh, officials. Um, we also have to see the number that almost 600 candidates backed down, uh, and this talked uh, talked also about points out uh, points also towards the fact that. Candidate, candidates get a lot of harassment, they get threats, they get, uh, you know, these violent displays, um, and they get scared, so they back down. And, and, and it's important to note, I think, we have usually in elections uh, two big actors, which is the civil society and the political class, those contending. Uh, but in this case, we have a very important third actor, which is the drug cartels, the criminal, uh, the, the organized crime, um, trying to exert influence, which is something very dangerous because, as you know, AMLOS has vowed uh, to bring peace to the country. However, in these elections, I mean, he doesn't have control of, 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 of the political sphere right now. He, he comes into power until December. That's how it works in Mexico. You win in July, but then you come into power until December. Uh, however, these elections made very clear that this third political actor is very strong, is very real, is there, and is planning to be there to stay. Is not planning to go anywhere. <laughs> so it's quite scary, at least at least in in my perspective, to see that. Yeah, that's it's terrifying. Well, it's, one of the things I read the other day was uh, Alfonso Romo, who I believe is going to be the new chief of staff under AMLO. He was saying 40% of Mexican territory is prisoner to chronic insecurity and violence. So is that going to be able to change? Is, is AMLO going to be able to do anything about that, especially if it's so endemic in society? Well, you have uh, already a project. And I think actually... One of the main issues that I was telling you before, that the, the, the reasons why AMLO won um, was because people are fed up by the current states, uh, the current status quo, the current state of Mexico, violence, and the collusion, uh, the perceived 
collusion of certain sectors of the government with uh, the organized crime, which means that basically the system that you're voting for and that you're relying to protect you, it's basically against you. So people were fed up, and he won because on this platform. So AMLO is, is inherited one of the biggest crises in terms of, uh, of political... Um, violence, but in terms of disappearance, in terms of uh, murders in the country, we have more than 30,000 people disappeared just uh, just by official numbers, uh, and more than 80,000 people murdered. So this is the issues that, that AMLO will have to fight. And let's, even though he has a majority uh, in the legislative sphere, let's not forget that he only has four governors. We have 32 states in the country, 32, and he uh, only, or, or Moreno, his party controls, at least in terms of, of the of the governors, only five. Um, the rest uh, are scattered around. So he has to create very close communication with these governors that, in fact, are the responsible for providing security uh, in, their, in their regions. Uh, but we see two things very clear proposed by AMLO in order to to, to end this wave of violence uh, throughout the country. And we have uh, an amnesty project, which is uh, basically it's proposed by the first secretary of state, which who is uh, Olga Sanchez, a woman, um, uh, which is nothing less than a project of restorative uh, or transitional justice. Uh, and it means that suddenly um, justice uh, shifts its focus uh, to the needs of the victims and their families rather than ju- uh, solely on the punishment of, of, of the cr- perpetrators or criminals. Um, and, and and that's that's one issue that he is going to he, that he's proposing to end this violence. And the other thing is to have a reform, a judicial reform. Um, and and this means, you know, a big change in Mexico. And at the and he's vowed to demilitarize the country because, as you know, Mexico um, uh, in 2006, uh, the, the then president Felipe Calderón began the war on drugs. And to do this, he deployed the military throughout the country, and this is something very dangerous to do. I mean, historically, we have seen how the military in the streets uh, are something that we should all be very wary about. We should be very careful. And things got out of control uh, for him and then for the following president, Peña Nieto. Um, having the military in the streets have not brought about peace. Violence have not uh, reduced um, and in fact, uh, a lot of uh, uh, international organizations have pointed to the fact that human rights violations have gotten worse due to the fact that you have the military and the navy in the streets uh, tackling internal security. Um, and this is something very troublesome. So on the one hand, we have AMLO trying to stop the strategies uh, to address this violence, which is going to be 
a different uh, a, a reform of the judicial of the police forces throughout the country. He aimed to get the militaries out of, of Mexico. He has vowed to do this by 2021 in three years' time. And he has also the approach of tackling inequality because, you know, at the end of the day, the drug, uh, the organized crime, the drug cartels, uh, get their people, get get new members because they pay them. You know, they give payments. I mean, it's a 30 billion business. They have a lot of money uh, and they bring a lot of money to, to sadly, to Mexico society. Um, so they pay young people to be part. They pay, but sometimes they also coerce. They are recruited by force. So you have a mixture of actors within these criminal organizations, and I think he's doing a lot of strategies to tackle those, um, to tackle uh, uh, the, what these actors represent from different, uh, with different strategies. One, tackling inequality, and on the other hand, tackling how security, internal security, is 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 going to be worked um, on on the next years. Well, uh, uh, and that's not a small that's not a small job at all. I mean, one one of the things I wanted to ask you because no. some of the criticism that I've I've read, and uh, and I wanted to ask you if you think you know or I uh, you know whether this is true or, or how you explain this. But a lot of uh, press sort of referred to him as a Mexican Trump who is populist and just makes promises that he then goes back on or can't keep. What I mean is that you know is is that just kind of. Uh, fear of the press is that because of something different what why is why are they referred to as a mexican trump well i would i would i i read recently a very good article on that uh, on the rolling stones magazine uh, which is titled why mexico's new president is nothing like trump um, i think everyone that it has fears uh, that there may be any similarity they I recommend them to go and read that article. Um, it's very enlightening, and it talks basically that, you know, just in terms of their public political discourse, they're very opposite. I mean, when people say, oh, you know, those both, both are populist, both are uh, uh, demagogist, and but they don't really, they haven't heard AMLO speak. He speaks of peace. He speaks of reconciliation. He speaks of equality. He speaks of, uh, of of not of isolation, not of economic isolation. He speaks actually on how Mexico should become very and uh, much more stronger in terms of the global economy. That's those are uh, his words. You know, he he has very he coins terms very easily, and people pick them up uh, because they rhyme. Um, it's funny, but it, it they, he does it because those are the values that he has at his core. And he says, for example, you cannot solve violence with violence. He's a pacifist. Uh, he has. I mean, that's uh, very uh, unlike Trump. Yeah, that's very, <laughs> you couldn't get further away from Trump. Yeah. Yes, and you have another saying which is uh, "vecarios no sicarios," which means students and and not traffickers. Um, and you have uh, a, another one that he says, um, you know, hugs and not bullets, abrazos, no balazos. Um, and they rhyme in Spanish, so they're very uh, catchy. But uh, but they're very serious. You can laugh at them if you want, but they are very serious. He doesn't want to tackle violence with more violence, and he wants to to do a reconciliation of the country. That's why he's proposing, in fact, 
this uh, this amnesty project of restorative justice. Um, and just in terms of, of that, the political discourse, uh, you, you know, Trump's discourse is xenophobic. Uh, it's it's you can even say violent. It's 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 not uh, reconciliating at the very least. Um, it's actually antagonizing. It's always you know prepared to 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 say something inappropriate and prepared to 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 find scapegoats. It's always prepared to find someone else, uh, to, to put the guilt on someone else's back. And, That's and just you, in terms... Sorry, Twitch, I, I was going to say, do you think now, uh, with AMLO in charge, that Mexico's relationship with America will change? Because I think I saw Donald Trump did a, a congratulations tweet or whatever, the, the minimum that he can do. Um, but, is you know, if you've now got a left-wing leader in Mexico, is that going to make relations uh, with Donald Trump's now more and more xenophobic White House kind of more unstable? Well, something that Gordon uh, Amlo has is that he has a big mandate. He has the largest mandate ever for a president in Mexico. So he has public uh, support, definitely. Whether uh, when, when Peña Nieto, I, I think at the beginning last year, the level of acceptance, the, of public uh, acceptance of him was 17%, the lowest in the Latin American region. No one wanted him. No one wants him. No one was supporting his political agenda, his economic agenda. No one was supporting him. No one was, was backing him up. So I think Trump smelled this. And, and regarding Peña Nieto, I think he was very uh, antagonistic, and even he invited him before Trump even won the elections. Peña Nieto invited him to Mexico, which I think it was a big political mistake. Um, but then I think Trump smells fear. And I think in in one way the, the political class and, and our political economy has historically been a subject of the U.S., not only in terms of, of natural regional dependency, but also in terms of, of, of the how the U.S. signature model of neoliberalism it's, or has been very convenient to the economic interests of the Mexican political class, um, that of the preferential and uh, accumulation of, of capital. Um, hence, uh, now that we have AMLO uh, coming into power, I mean, he has 30, he, he was voted by 30 million people. Um, and, and, and we will have, of course, a change on the economic approach. Um, he, he will, in, in fact, maybe shift to, to, towards a more nationalistic um, and popular approach to public spending. Uh, and yes, on, of market intervention, uh, which will be indeed a, a radical change. Uh, but also, he aims to, to remain part of the international economy and to, uh, and, and to reflect this, this macroeconomic growth in, uh, into, you know, Micro economy of the people living in the country. So this is going to be very important because, sadly, NAFTA. Uh, you've heard of NAFTA, our economic trade deal with with Canada and, and the U.S. It's very important for the economy. I mean, it's always put us in a bit of a disadvantage in terms of the economic, uh, you know, uh, relations with our neighbor neighbors in the north. However. If you suddenly cancel it, as, as Trump is proposing, it's going to bring about some macroeconomic uh, impact to Mexico. And this is very, very tricky. You know, 
Trump has, up until now, been in a small honeymoon with Andres Manuel. Uh, he He's coming, I think, to the UK this Friday. However, uh, his economic team is actually going to be in Mexico. He's sending, in, uh, this Friday, he's sending Mike Pompeo, his state secretary. He's sending uh, Jared Kushner, his, his, I believe he's his, his son-in-law. Uh, and and also, I think, um, uh, other people, I think Stephen Newking, many people from his team, his economic team, to speak with Lopez Obrador and his his team. Uh, and I, and it's very likely that the main topic is going to be NAFTA, the renegotiation of NAFTA, and, and possibly also migration and security. I think those are the three main issues that they're going to discuss. And truth, <laughs> truth be told, we need to be prepared for the worst because because we all know Trump, and we all we'll know that one day one day he says he smiles at you, and the other day he stabs you in the back. So I think what's going to happen is that Mexico might even strengthen his its economic relations with, with Canada. And with the uh, with the Latin America, with the rest of Latin America, right now we export eighty percent of our exports go to the U.S. So imagine the impact that is going to have if suddenly the NAFTA is it, it, cancelled. The economic team, of course, aims to have a renewed and, and a renegotiated NAFTA, you know, trying to lose as as, as little as possible in terms of economic capital. But we don't know. Trump is crazy. <laughs> sure. He's, well, he's completely unstable. That's the problem. But I mean, you know, you think there'd be some logic in supporting a Mexican government that might uh, get rid of inequality because then there'd be less um, migration over to the US anyway, wouldn't there? If Mexico had a uh, more stable economy, more people would stay in Mexico to work. And then yeah. Trump would You're... surely be, he'd prefer that. It's, but I mean, not that it means he'll understand that or go for it. <laughs> in my head, well, that would make sense. Yeah, he... he... I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think. I don't think Trump is 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 not smart. I think, and actually, one of the main things that AMLO will propose to him and will will offer is, is to to actually take care, to really take care of the local economy of the country in order to prevent, as you very very well said, uh, more migration to the north. He has even vowed to to welcome some migrants from Central America because Central America, it's I mean, if Mexico is bad, uh, Central America also has its its, its issues uh, in terms of violence and and drug uh, sorry drug cartels, but also on gangs. So yes, um, I think I think it's going to become very interesting. You know, in terms of of of, of migrants, Mexico. I think the the, the the migrants in in the U.S. suffering um, in Mexico. We have a similar case. Um, if, clo- if, bo- if Trump closes the border and actually prevents migrants crossing it, uh, whether he constructs a wall or if, whether he sends more uh, vigil- uh, more vigilance, and more police forces there, suddenly Mexico in the next years is going to have a migrant crisis, not only because of its own migrants, but also because of Central Central American migrants remaining in Mexico. And Mexico, up until now, has been a very hostile environment for migrants. 
they get disappeared, they get killed. Um, certain areas of Mexico are very xenophobic against migrants. So AMLO has a very difficult, uh, you know, six years ahead of him. He He's going to have to deal with a lot of things. And I think he has a great team uh, to back him up. But we all still have to remain very uh, vigilant and, and, and very supportive in terms of our role as a, a civil society. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, we'll be back with Lupita in a minute. But first, yes, I'm sorry, it's... No, I don't want to talk about Brexit any more than you want to hear it. I mean, maybe, maybe we could just skip this bit and then I won't have to say anything and you won't have to hear it and we can just pretend I've covered what I need to. Fair? Okay, all right, go. Do, 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 not talking about Brexit. Still here? Shit, okay. All right, well, how about we talk about something else? I don't know, favourite vegetables whose availability will be affected by Brexit? Shit, okay, look, I guess we have to do this. So, look, rather than me go on and on and on about who said what nonsense and what petty infighting is happening this week, I thought it'd be best to do a quick rundown of, firstly, the Brexit white paper and why all the Brexiteers hate it, even though it has white in the title, and all the Remainers hate it, even though it's something Brexiteers hate. And I should say that's seemed like a really good idea when I was writing this episode today, but by this evening, when it's all changed and everything's been voted against it, it kind of feels slightly more pointless. But hey, let's do it anyway, because why not? And then we can do a quick look at the problems with having a second referendum, or a secarendum, as I like to call it, even though I shouldn't. And then I'll try not to mention Brexit for the rest of this episode. 
I promise. So, first up, let's look at May's new plan, and by new plan, I mean a plan cobbled together with loads of bits of old plans and plans other people have that's already now an old plan that isn't going to work. It's sort of like having a new car that you take home only to find the front end is from a different car to the back end, and the wheels are from a child's tricycle, and the radio is made of spam, and frankly, it's not going to go anywhere because somebody's already keyed it. I mean, if that happened, obviously I'd definitely blame you for not doing more checks at the car sale, but there you go. This new plan, the white paper, upset everyone because it absolutely had cherry picking, you know that term you've heard throughout the process, whereby the government said, hey, those bits look nice, we'll have them, while leaving out any others that they aren't a fan of. Which is how you pick cherries, I guess, only with cherries they're all still cherries, so it's quite harder to be upset, you know, by that, because not eating a cherry with a worm in it makes sense, unlike just taking all the bits of the single market you like and not the bits with worms in. For example, the white paper said the UK will keep all the same aviation standards as the EU, stay in the internal EU energy market and have a close association with Eurotom, which is the energy regulation group, not a guy called Tom, who's really big in the EU. So it basically said, hey, all those things we left as we don't want to be in the single market, can we still have them though, please? Thanks, sorry, bye. And then it said that the UK and EU would notify each other through the joint committee of any proposed and adoptive legislative proposals, which isn't what would happen if you look at any other agreement the EU has with Norway or Switzerland or anywhere else in the world, where what happens is the EU says, here is a new rule, and then the country takes it on. And that's it. I mean, once again, the UK is walking in assuming that they have all the cards and seemingly ignoring that everyone else is playing chess. I'm not going to go through all the bits that are problematic in the white paper because firstly, it'll take ages. Secondly, the EU probably weren't going to agree on most of them. Uh, Thirdly, MPs don't really agree on any of them. And I'm pretty sure businesses won't either. And ultimately, a whole load of them are now irrelevant after all the amendments that have been made. But here's the doodad, right? The trade parts of the white paper didn't need to be agreed as quickly as everything else. They had to be done by the end of the transition period, end of December 2020. So the only bits right now that had to be set in stone are to do with the withdrawal agreement or the back stop aka what you have in place if it all goes wrong which is you know sort of aka do you remember ireland that place you keep forgetting well we're watching you and if you fuck things up northern ireland has to stay in the eu so to cover that there were nine points in the white paper that basically said hey we'll do what you do with trade so there's no need for a border which means the backstop wouldn't have to be used which means ireland and the eu could agree as even if the nine points weren't good the backstop was there so they could push ahead it's a bit like how i'm self-employed so i always have to list a guarantor whenever i do anything like rent a new flat or get a loan or anything grown up because they really don't trust me because i have a clown's job but then the aim is that i'll cover things and the guarantor won't have to be used but the financier can agree to it except in this case it'd be a lot more like me saying I could definitely pay it knowing full well I absolutely couldn't and my dad's going to get really really angry with me in just a few months time. Either way, in theory, that white paper might have meant that in March next year things weren't quite as chaotic as they previously seemed. I mean, they might have been, but come on guys, if I can't pretend to be positive about this, then I'm going to have to go down the whole, hey, at least we'll stop being an obese country when we're all now nourished due to lack of food imports route, and that is much less nice. So while the white paper was the sort of document that should have happened before Article 50 was triggered, proving that the government had any sort of plan back then that could have well been amended in time for deadlines, that didn't happen. And so in a weird way, maybe we can be vaguely relieved that this white paper was finally something that sounds like the government have at least discussed Brexit. I mean, sure, this is like a child handing in their homework two years late and then the teacher praising them for making sure they took their time on it. But it will, you know, it needed changes or scrapping and replacing with something else or just putting in a bin and being set fire to while we watch the country collapse, but at least for now something has happened. The white paper was sort of the government's Cliff Richard at Wimbledon in 1996 when it rained. No one wanted him there, no one enjoyed it, but at least someone was doing something, even if ultimately it wasn't what anyone would have asked for. But... 
what changes all of that is that there were two bills in the Commons this week, one of which has already happened on taxation and cross-border trade, and one on the trade bill. All of which have amendments from Remainer MPs that would mean the UK would have to stay in the Customs Union, and the taxation bill also had four amendments from the European Research Group, who are no doubt friends with the Taxpayers' Alliance, where they all have fun in their little John Ironic names meetings. The taxation and cross-border trade bill passed this evening on Monday night, but only because May added all of the Brexiteer amendments to it, one of which makes the backstop impossible, meaning the EU is likely to reject the whole thing anyway, and others that... Look, look, let me be honest, it's not even worth me explaining them. Basically, they're the equivalent of driving an RV straight through May's plans, because now the chances of the white paper being accepted by the EU have gone from slim to none to less than zero, meaning that the Brexiteers are just insistent on getting a no-deal and reverting the UK to World Trade Organisation tariffs. Something that was terrifying before, but now suddenly much more so, as the US have been blocking the appointment of members of the WTO's appellate body, and that would mean that the organisation could now be incapable of resolving any disputes between global parties, and thus meaning Trump can screw over anyone he likes in a trade war. But hey, he wouldn't do that to the UK, right? I mean, we all know we have a high level of special relationship with him, you know, one that's just seven places below Russia and kind of totally depends on what he thinks about when he tweets while on the toilet. Hey, we should be fine. Right, okay, now let's look at Trump's idea that May should just sue the EU. Ha, no, I'm only joking. That is just stupid. I mean, what would we sue them for? That how dare they let us leave them and the rules that we signed up to, knowing that it was fucking stupid? I mean, you'd have better luck calling one of those helplines and saying our country had an accident at work that wasn't our fault, and blaming the Russians for destabilising the necessary support structures that have caused severe spine problems in quite a lot of our politicians. No, ignoring that tangerine jizzrags idiocy, the other idea that's popular this week and is currently still may be relevant is the possibility of a second referendum or a people's referendum because apparently the last one was mostly for bots and i mean it seems like a great idea because maybe now unlike in 2016 everyone's realized what a pain in the ass brexit is and might vote more sensibly especially as our mps don't really have a meaningful vote and tons of leave voters have now died so here you go you lot ruined it you lot revote and fix it Sure, except it's not that easy, and not just because I don't trust people, I mean, they can barely vote on Love Island correctly, but for a start, across the board, many in politics and the media still seem to think that the UK is as powerful as the EU and can do what it wants. Leavers still think we can just up and go and it'll hurt the EU more than us, soft Brexiteers still seem to think we can have all the bits we like and nothing else, but there's been very little information from any leadership about what the actual Brexit choices are and what they would mean, so if we headed to a second referendum, would anyone really know what the choices are other than thinking one is just telling the EU where to stick it and one isn't and I'm assuming those aren't just the questions on the ballot paper to begin with which right now I really feel they could be. The other bigger issue, actually, though, is time. The first Referendum Act for the vote took seven months to pass with its primary legislation on what the referendum would mean and its secondary legislation on voting registration and funding limits and all that sort of stuff. Thing is, it's mid-July now, Parliament's about to go into recess even earlier than it was meant to, then it's conference season, then the first step of the agreement with the EU around the withdrawal bill needs to be in place for October, so the possibility of having a second referendum in March is pretty slim, unless we ask the EU for an extension on everything, and right now I sort of feel we're getting to the phase where we'll just owe the EU so many favours, we'll be terrified that at some point over the next 10 years, they're just going to turn around and ask us to quietly take out Luxembourg or something. May has specifically said that there'll be no second referendum, so it's out of the question anyway. Although knowing her, that probably doesn't mean there won't be a first referendum with a different name, or I don't know, a prequel referendum, or most likely she's just going to go on a walking holiday and come back and announce a second referendum. 
Lastly, the number of EU citizens emigrating from the UK last year is the highest on record. Do you see? We didn't even need Brexit or stronger borders or whatever. All we had to do to please all those that wanted lower immigration figures was make things so shit here that everyone goes. Well done, everyone. Sorry, I did warn you to skip this bit, but did you? No. And yet, it is like I'm blaming you for my lack of preparation in making this bit all okay, but I feel like, if nothing else, I'm well on trend with that sort of attitude right now. And now, back to Lupita. One of the things that I found quite uh, striking to find out was that it, it's now, I think, 49% the lower house, 51% the Senate is uh, female um, politicians, which is really exciting. And I think Mexico is now fourth in the world for women's legislation. I mean, what difference is, is that going to make? And I'm guessing that's quite different to how things have been before. Yes, uh, that's, that was a very surprising thing. We knew that his cabinet uh, was going to be have gender parity since before he won. He was proposing uh, eight, eight and eight, eight women and eight men in, in his cabinet. So that was uh, already already very positive. And then when he got uh, the majority, we also learned that you know they have a gender parity, almost gender parity, in the legislative arena. And that's amazing because Mexico, well, politics, politics in Mexico has have historically been belonged to men. You always saw this. We call them tolly tables, which is like a like a VIP tables where only men were speaking. I don't know how you call it here in the UK. Basically, you know, panels and everything, just men. Um, but something that it's even even more surprising, and it's 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 very nice to see, is that. He has positioned women in the most important roles uh, of his government. I mean, the head of his campaign was an amazing woman, Tatiana Cloutier. Uh, he was the, the head of, of his presidential campaign. Um, and, and he came to be beloved by, by all his followers uh, because he has a very uh, good charisma. Uh, but then, so you have the three main exes that, is an AMLO uh, goals uh, on the business years, which is corruption, uh, which is to tackle corruption, to tackle inequality, and to tackle violence. And then you have tackling corruption, you have um, Irma Sandoval, which is the head of the public service ministry, and she will be, in fact, in charge uh, of eliminating corruption in government. Um, and then that's a woman. And then to tackle inequality, you have the development minister and the work and pension minister, who both are women, Luisa Alvarez uh, and Luis Alcalde. And then, in regarding to stop violence, you have the secretary, the first secretary of state, and she is a woman, Olga Sanchez. Uh, so, you know, and in terms of economy, the, the economy minister, she's also a woman. Uh, she, she's called Graciela Marquez, an amazing, an amazing economist and historian. So you, you certainly see him positioning women in the most important uh, places in his government, and I think he's relying uh, on them not only to shift, um, not only uh, not, it's not only like a marketing strategy. I think he truly believes that they will bring about change. You know, historically, politics have been dominated by men. And then he's he's shifting towards an approach of gender parity that just 
signals to uh, his very positive signals towards the potential that it has for change his government i believe yeah. It's also very, very different to Trump in every way <laughs> to have gender parity. Um, I wanted to mm-hmm. ask, um, I wanted to ask you about Justice Mexico now. Obviously, uh, your campaign, your charity. Um, you, when I met you, you're raising money to send in independent invigilators to the election. Um, I wanted to ask you firstly how that worked out and what happened, and also what you're going to do next. Now Amlo's in. What area of Mexico's future are you focusing on as a campaign? Yeah, I I remember uh, the fundraising we had. It was amazing. And and yes, we did send uh, the international observers. We managed to gather uh, almost 30 international observers. Uh, It was not only ourselves as Justice Mexico now. We got the help of many unions. We we got the help of Unite. We got the help of of the National Education Union. uh, of the transport union, the communication union, it was it was like a collective effort actually. And and in Mexico, I mean, from here we were organizing. In Mexico, we got the help of a, of a very important new of a very new and important network, which is called Red Universitaria y Ciudadana por la Democracia, which uh, it's it's uh, was the, the basically they were organizing everything on the ground. Uh, uh, to, in order to receive international observers, not only of Mexico, sorry, not only of the UK, but also of the US and South America and Europe, um, and mainland Europe. <laughs> we're still not out. We're still not out. Um, and um, and yes, so this network was was amazing. Um, I still have a, a, a WhatsApp chat. We, we are around, I don't know, probably 35 people in that WhatsApp chat. And they were informing us uh, on on on, on live, live uh, what was happening on the election day. They were all uh, they were all, they were all arrived a couple of days before election to be trained properly as international observers, um, and then they were deployed on the election day very early. They left the hotel at 6 a.m. Uh, in order to reach different states around Mexico City. They went to Veracruz. They went to Puebla, they went to uh, Estado de Mexico, Morelos, Tlaxcala, Hidalgo. They went to many, many states around the uh, Mexico City. And, and and they were basically there to, to, to see. Some of them saw uh, difficult scenarios. A lot of uh, reports were submitted to the National Electoral Institute. Um, a lot of reports of, of, uh, of fraudulent things going on. Uh, but in general, we were, of course, very worried uh, for their safety. So uh, they were not by themselves. They also they partnered with, with national observers, with Mexicans. They were amazing with them. And at the end of the day, the experience was very enriching. Um, they all the we're meeting again very soon. All the observers and, uh, and us from Mexico now, from Justice Mexico now, and and you know when when things were happening, they were sending us pictures. They were sending us uh, a bit of accounts, text uh, narrating what was going on. And at the at the end, um, some of them stayed even up until two a.m. counting. Votes. They they did not count the votes themselves. Of course, they were observing the processes of of count uh, of vote counting. And and when it all finished, 
they were all very eager to go to Sokalo to see the public displays of joy that were happening um, in the central. Sokalo, their hotel was two blocks away from Sokalo. Sokalo is the main central piazza of, of in Mexico City, um, ne- next to the National Palace and and. It's, it's a very big place, and it got packed, packed of people chanting, singing. It was, it was, it was midnight. It was 11, between 11 p.m. in Mexico midnight. Here we were still awake, in monitoring. It was 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., and we were all receiving here in, in, in London the videos of, of of the people chanting in the streets. You could just go online and Google it, and it, it will make you, you know, it will give you goosebumps just to see it. Yeah, it must have been an amazing experience for them. Absolutely. Um, yes, and and I think as uh, just as Mexico now. I mean, now that AMLO is in place, it doesn't mean that suddenly uh, things are going to change from one day to the other. Uh, change is going to be attained in a very slow process. So, human rights organizations are very important. He, he even he even proposed to create a national plan. Uh, of, of specification and to include um, um, organizations uh, of on human rights, international organizations on human rights, uh, in this process. So uh, our job is not done uh, 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 at all. <laughs> We're still is still going to uh, violence is still spread around the country. And as I told you, the the collusion uh, of public uh, servants or of the police forces or military forces with, with the organized crime is still there. I mean, some of them are very good. They're serving the country, but some parts are are, are still colluded. So AMLO is not going to bring about a magic change. This is going to take years, and it's going to be a very slow and gruesome process of political, um, you know, uh, probably political entanglements that you need to certainly unpick very slowly. Um, so we were we have been focusing on on issues like violence against migrants, against journalists, activists, students, teachers, and, and, and on issues like for disappearance, torture. That is widespread. It's a, is a widespread practice um, in the judicial system of the country, and it's very sad to say it's so torture. It's central. Um, we work on extrajudicial killings and the abuse of power, and we are definitely going to continue working on those issues. We're going to continue working from from the United Kingdom uh, and partnering with with other European organizations and Mexican organizations because AMLO needs help. If he is to bring about change, he's not going to do it by himself. And, and and he's not gonna do it only with his with his um, team of of, of um, uh, with his governmental team. He's gonna need of the civil society, and we need to keep pressuring him, and we need to keep pushing him to 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 deliver to to, to the Mexican population. That's very important. And I think from the international sphere, one of the most important issues is that we um, historically governments have been a bit. Um, a bit, probably a bit antagonistic towards the meddling of international organizations in the in the issues of the country. 
on the human rights issues of the country. So I think we need to make sure that AMLO, AMLO has said that he's going to openly invite these, these organisms like the UN and the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. But we need to surveil this country. We need to observe it. And we need to be part of it. The work is not done. We need to keep working in the next years and, and, and even decades for, to bring about change. And uh, apart from Justice Mexico Now, who all the listeners need to go and check out, um, what other organizations, campaigns or writers or, you know, would you recommend that listeners uh, go and find out about if they want to find out more about Mexican politics? Who do you go to for information? Well, um, I think there are some very important groups working in, in Europe. I think the biggest one right now, even bigger than us, I think. I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, it's called the German Network for Human Rights in Mexico. Uh, it's coordinated by Sandra Scheimer, uh, and they they actually have a lot of uh, uh, do a lot of work with the German Parliament. Um, they even uh, they 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 got the German par- Parliament to address the issue of of the gun cell. Uh, uh, of Heckler and Koch selling guns to Mexico and allowing them to to reach uh, violent areas such as Guerrero uh, in the in the Ayotzinapa case where the students were abducted, um, the police forces that abducted them um, were were using Heckler and Koch guns. And this is completely illegal because, by the in terms of the German law. Uh, um, do Hitler shouldn't have sent or shouldn't have allowed these guns to reach violent areas. Um, so they're doing a lot of, of work um, regarding regarding the gun control uh, in Mexico, but also in terms of human rights in general. And, I mean, the basic organizations uh, like Peace Brigades in Mexico, they're doing a great job in gathering all the information of violence against activists. And then Article 19 Mexico can provide a lot of information on, on, on the current, the awful situation that journalists are living uh, and, the, um, and that freedom of thought and expression is living in Mexico in the in the last decade and, and even since the 70s, you can you can argue before. So yes, I think I think Article 19 it's a, it's a good place to start and Peace Brigades. Um, and then, and then, I mean, if people follow us on our social media, we publish a lot of pieces um, of other organizations. <clears throat> this is in terms of human rights. Now, if people want to know more about politics uh, within the country, well, I think, I mean, <laughs> I would suggest the media, but then you, we always know that media is a bit rigged and that, that it, it might be hard to find a good a good. Uh, place to find the true how true uh, the, the the real things happening on the ground um we work closely with uh well we don't work closely but we are friendly with a there is a group a political left group called um democracia deliberada deliberate democracy and i think they are they're all very young and i think they work very well in terms of of narrating the political arena of of the country. So if people want to know a bit more about politics, they can perhaps approach their, their networks, their social networks, and learn a bit. Why not? 
Thank you so much to Lupita Valdez for speaking with me. Justice Mexico Now can be found on Twitter at Justice Mexico UK and on Facebook at Justice Mexico Now. Um, they will have a brand new website soon, which I'll plug on the Parpol Bro Twitter and Facebook and update on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website as soon as it's up as well. Um, and of course, the transcript of that interview and all further campaigns and people to follow that Lupita suggests will be up on the website at some point as well. Um, I've been told by Kat, who brilliantly does the linear notes every week, not to say by the end of this week, as they may not be, mainly because she does them out of the kindness of her own heart rather than any sort of monetary sum. And so let's be fair, she can do them whenever she likes. Uh, I'm not running some sort of sports direct slave ship here. Um, whereas my wife does the transcribing, uh, also out of sheer kindness, but she doesn't listen to his podcast as she gets enough of me gabbing on her all week. So I can totally make unfair promises about that and say, hey, the transcription will be up by, I don't know, last Wednesday. What's she going to do about it? Nothing, I tell you. Nothing. <laughs> Only one episode left before the summer break, and the interview is going to be with Sam Jeffers at Who Targets Me, uh, and it'll be all about political advertising targeting, just so you can be wary on your holes. Joyful stuff. Um, but of course, once the podcast is back, it will be hungry for more interviewees to guzzle audioly. Is that a word? Audioly. Anyway, I've had one nice suggestion sent through this week, but any other thoughts on who to chat to or political subjects to find someone to talk about, please let me know via partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, at Parpol Bro on Twitter or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Or you could send me a message through a hidden network of pneumatic tube systems, although chances are where I'm in London, by the time it arrives it'll just contain a very dizzy rat who's had the ride of his life and illegible fragments of paper. So, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? Ah, <laughs> oh, that is it. That's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. <laughs> all of it I mean there was a lot wasn't it anyway once again many millions of thankings for your listenership and while the mere giving of your time is enough should you wish to excel at generosity please do donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi if you can and review the show on your pod app of choice or if you're stuck in the world's most sedate but digitally aware hostage situation the podcast app that has been thrust upon you against your will Gracias to Acast for entwining this show in its many audio branches and to my brother The Last Skeptic for not only adding the music but also loudening this podcast so it's suitable for all your noisy transport journeys. Yes, you should be able to hear this now even heading to work on a pneumatic drill or an angry wailing Ibex. The Last Skeptic's album Under the Patio is on all music platforms so do giz it a listen if you can. Thank you. This will be back next week when Susan Trousers, Ned Pilchard and Stephen Generic Guy all resigned from the cabinet in protest of May's Brexit plan with no one even noticing they never existed in the first place. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Donald Trump's Advice Service, providing you with all the wrong opinions so you can more easily find the right ones. Not sure what to do about noisy neighbours? Call Trump's Advice Service and Donnie's best experts will tell you to maybe set fire to their house, try eating their stereo next time you go round, or just punch your own ears off, allowing you to avoid all of those options. Baby won't stop crying? Just give us a little ring on the Trump phone and within two extortionally charged minutes, we'll ask you if you've tried keeping your child in a sack outside or perhaps filling their mouth with gravel, allowing you to absolutely not do either of those things. Donald Trump's advice service, from bankruptcy to Brexit, will make sure you pick almost any choice but ours. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.